And God's word says this. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. Please be seated. Let's pray one more time, and then look at the text this morning. Lord, we thank you so much for the privilege of your word of hearing it, of interacting with it, of reading it. We know it's your holy scriptures, and so we ask, Spirit, as we work together through it, convict us where we need it, comfort us where we need it, teach us, and help equip us as we live lives for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I can't help whenever I read this passage and I think of Eutychus falling out the window. I remember hearing this as a little kid. It was so interesting to think of that happening, but I generally think of my days in seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. Working the midnight shift. Heading out about 9 o'clock, 8.30 or 9, leaving my family. Our two oldest girls were like 4 and 2 years old, something like that, and I'd been in seminary class all day and driving in to a hot, sweaty, noisy distribution center for UPS, that midnight shift. And I would, this is the days back in the 90s when, remember that TV commercial, uh, dude, you're getting a Dell? (laughs) Those Dell, that thing would pile up and I would know the boss is going to tap me on the shoulder. I'm going to have to head up there and start throwing those computers around. And, and it was uh, uh, quite the day, quite the time. I would uh, work hard uh, sorting, and then they gave me a promotion, and I would load the trucks for the, the guys. And I had power over these drivers. I, I remember thinking about how much power I had. If I could read that address for his route in Jackson, Mississippi, and once I got good and learned where all the addresses were, and I could set his truck up in order where he could hit the first stop, the second stop, and all that. Or if I really wanted to mess with him, I would just make it uh, tragic for him. Uh, The first week, he wanted me fired, one of my bosses. I had three drivers. Uh, But by the time I quit, they were begging me to stay. Um, It was a fun time. It was a hard time. It was a late night time. Uh, There was some craziness. There was a guy that came to work... uh, and load next to me, there's a little guy named Alex from Bulgaria. But there was a girl who said, well, who's that? Who's, this? who's the new guy? And somebody said, oh, that's manual labor. And she believed him. And she called this guy Manuel for a couple of days until Alex finally told her that he's not Manuel, he's Alex from Bulgaria. 
and just crazy things like that, but it was hard work. And I'd come home at night, and the T-shirt would be soaking wet and dirty, and my stomach would be black from the dirt that would soak through. And I had just two or three hours to get ready and then go to seminary classes, get that master's degree in in theology. And and, uh, it was hard, hard times, Uh, tiring times. I was off Saturday night and Sunday, so on Friday night, a a, a co-worker and I, a young African-American guy, would go out every Friday night. We'd go to Denny's and celebrate the end of the work week, and we'd talk. And that's where I learned about uh, Tupac uh, and Biggie Smalls and East Coast rap and West Coast rap. And I knew all about Interscope uh, records versus Death Row records and all of that. And it was very interesting to hear a perspective from a, a guy who grew up in Iowa who was going to seminary to sit with a young man who'd grown up in Jackson, Mississippi and hear his life story and the way he looked. And boy, I virtue signaled to myself. I thought I was quite the guy crossing these racial boundaries. And I was, and then one day he was late getting there. And I walked in and I saw all these guys. And this was a hard part of town. And there had been in the news uh, some drug and some, some shootings and things like that. And I was out of place and I realized I was no hero for meeting with him. He was my protector, and he was a hero for meeting with me. And it was wonderful days. But I was so tired all the time during the week. There were um, maybe five hours here and five hours here. I couldn't get an eight-hour sleep at all. If I could fall asleep, wake up, I could get maybe three or four hours, and maybe three or four hours here with little kids in the house. And Paula was a hero for working, and she was babysitting. We were just trying to make it through. And I said, I can't afford to sleep in class. I'm not going to seminary to sleep in class. So I sat down in the front row because I said, I will not dare to sleep if I'm in the front row. I I wouldn't dare sit right underneath a professor and fall asleep. So I sat down there, and and my friends there in the front row were all the the Asian students, the couple of Chinese, Indonesians, Deddy Wakarza, and Inawati Teddy, and then my Korean buddy, Hongi Kim. And when Hongi found out that I have a Korean sister and I like kimchi, his wife started making kimchi for me. And boy, we'd sit down there, and those people took such good notes. I always borrowed Ina's notes from her because she was the best note taker. And I look at my days, and here I am starting. You know how you start to write, and then it's just a line. And I said, I've got to stay there. I don't want to fall asleep in this. And if I sit in the back, I know I'm going to sleep. And finally, I had to go to Dr. Davis, uh, particularly. And I said, I am so sorry. Please forgive me for sleeping in your class. I don't mean to do that. You're a good teacher. And he said, oh, it's okay. He said, I admire what you guys are doing. And, and he, uh, he gave me some permission. Um, but I can't help but think of that when I think of a young man sitting up here in our text this morning. And Paul is talking. And it even gives a funny language. And Luke is writing this in the first person. And it says, and as Paul talked still longer, he sank into a deep sleep. There's some things to learn from this text this morning as we go through Acts. I'm glad that we have this. It's a kind of a funny story. It has a good ending. It's not as severe. I mean, what we've had recently as we've preached through Acts are are beatings and imprisonments and and, uh, and and persecutions and things. And this is just a simple story of a congregation, and it's a place where we've all been. 
falling asleep while the preacher preaches on and on and on. We all can relate to that, can't we? So let's look and see what there is to learn from this text this morning, since that's where we find ourselves this week. First thing of, 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 three, of three points. First thing is, there was a broader church of which this local church was a part. We didn't read the first six verses of chapter 20. But it talks all about how Paul is traveling. He's visiting the churches. The church is brand new. The gospel is starting to come. Christianity is springing up in all these places. And he's doubled back. And you think of the concerns that Paul had for the churches. Right about this time, the Corinthian church was starting to have some real serious problems with some some, uh, sexual sins in that area. And you can read about that in 1 Corinthians. Uh, He's worried about uprisings here and there and some persecutions coming. And we see that the context of every local church is the bigger church. We'll take communion in a little bit. And I've compared it because I've heard somebody compare it to it, and I liked it. It's almost like in a baseball stadium when somebody tries to start the wave. You know, and they stand up and stand up, and, you know, circles around and around. And Paul and I experienced that at the Bush Stadium this year. It was kind of fun to, to see it. You think of God's church and the bigger church, and somewhere in a time zone where they've already met for worship, and they've partook of the Lord's table, they've sung together. That's our brothers and sisters. They may not speak our language, but they speak our spiritual language, and God speaks to them. And it's just like a wave rolling over around the globe of people worshiping together. This incident of this story of this young man who fell asleep during the service happened in the context of a broader church. You are connected to a broader church. There are Christians you will meet for the first time in heaven. But that's your brother and your sister. And so think about that. Think about the, the various churches and you being part of it. Got an email this week, and this was, this was so good, it encouraged me. I'm going to see if I can jump there and jump back. man wrote to me. He's an elder, and I know him from Presbytery. He said, Greetings, Brother Dave, in the name of Christ. I trust this male finds you well. He's an elder in a church over in Rhode Island in a, in a PCA church there. He's not the pastor, but he's one of their leaders. He said, it is our practice to pray for one of the member churches or campus ministries of our presbytery each Lord's Day during the pastoral prayer time of our service. And in God's good providence, your number is up. Exclamation and a smile. He said, how can we pray most effectively for you your family, and the ministry at Christ the Shepherd Presbyterian Church during our morning worship this coming Sunday. Somewhere, maybe it already happened, maybe it's happening now, maybe it will. Somebody's going to be praying for us, and a congregation is going to be praying along. He said, thanks in advance for sharing. May God richly bless your ministry in word and sacrament for the building up of the saints and the gathering of the elect. Solo Deo Gloria, Mark. I answered him like this, and here's, here's how the prayer is going to go for us from another church. He said, thank you for this. Yes, we welcome your prayers. We have a great situation in that the Brazilian PCA congregation has shared our facilities for about 10 years. Just before COVID-1984 struck, the Danbury Chinese Alliance Church, a wonderful CMA denomination, 
agreed to rent our building for services on Sunday afternoons and also for some events during the week. The coronavirus postponed our partnership, but now they've been here for a month. It's great. Worship in English at 9, worship in Portuguese at 11.15, worship in Mandarin at 2. In addition to this, the AA group that's been with us during the week continues to meet Monday through Friday, and a women-only AA group will begin meeting on Monday evenings. So the prayers are prayers of thanks, but also prayers for wisdom, that there won't be any offense given or taken as we share space. And for the people who walk through the doors who are non-believers, that the Holy Spirit would draw them to himself, and for the Christians in the congregations to be built up. Again, thank you, and how can we pray for you? Think about your participation as a congregation in the bigger, broader church. Wow. Good to be part of all of that. Our application for this point in this section as we go this morning, I'll just make it now and won't make, it, make this application at the end. What do we take from this as we see back then a local church meeting in the context of a larger church? And we think about ourselves as a local church meeting, but in the context of Christians meeting all over. We do this. Love your local church. Meet here for fellowship, but don't forget the broader church and your privilege at being part of a bigger picture. Thank God there's going to be more people in heaven than just us people that Jesus has saved, sins that have been forgiven of all kinds of people all around the world. The second thing to look at in this text, and if you can, you can look at your, your word or remember how it was read and what we said, but the second thing is that this local church had various practices that can help inform us as we worship. There are things that we see going on in this church, and we say, that's how churches worship. When we look at the Bible, we try and do things uh, as biblically as, as, as we can. We're, we're supposed to do that. When we come together, there's things that we do that are part of all worship services that we see in Scripture, and a couple of them are here. I want you to remember, and this is when you look at the Bible, when you interpret the Bible and read it, there are things in the Bible that are prescriptive and things in the Bible that are descriptive. Be careful not to take the descriptive and put a yoke on yourself, but make sure that when there are things that are prescriptive, that you do them. What am I saying? This passage is a descriptive passage. This passage doesn't say, whenever you meet, do such and such and such and such and such and such. There are passages that talk about when we come together to meet what, what we are to do. This is a descriptive passage, so we listen to them and we learn from them as we, as, as we read. So in this descriptive passage, look at these things and think of other churches in the scriptures and why we do things like we do. First thing, it says they met on the first day of the week. Verse 7, on the first day of the week, Luke says, when we were gathered together to break bread, on the first day of the week. Why do churches meet on the first day of the week? Why did they meet? Uh, A guy that I I like a lot, a, a great scholar, Australian Uh, theologian F.F. Bruce uh, said this is the earliest unambiguous evidence we have for the Christian practice of gathering together on that day, the first day. But you think about the first day of the week is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Resurrection Sunday happened after the Sabbath. 
Remember, those ladies could not wait for the Sabbath to get over so they could go anoint his body. And it was on a Sunday that they went down there. Uh, you look at the next two appearances from Jesus in the Gospels. The disciples are gathered together. That's where Jesus appeared to them after he rose from the dead. Happened twice. Pentecost happened on a Sunday. And so we look at these things, and then we start to see, and the established practice was for them to meet on the first day of the week. They shifted from the uh, Old Testament Sabbath to what we call the Christian Sabbath and the New Sabbath. Um, it's prescriptive, but that's a, a good reason and answer for why we meet on Sundays and have. Look at this. It was a formal meeting together. Here's a prescriptive. It's from the, from, from the passages that say, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. That is prescribed by Scripture. You're supposed to meet in a church in a context of worship with God's people somewhere. That's prescriptive. But here we see the descriptive and we take this and, and this meeting on the first day of the week and this gathering together was just something that they did and we do. What did they gather to do? Look at verse 7 again and then we'll look at verse 11. It says on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread. Verse 11, and when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak. The breaking of bread in this context, in the worship context, is talking about the Lord's Supper. It's a communion. This was part of their service. Uh, they met together. There were some elements of worship they had. They had some confession of sin. Every time God's people got together, uh, they could acknowledge how great God is. They acknowledged their need of God in, in a confession of sin. Uh, it seems like there was some singing. There was definitely some preaching. And we see them together as a congregation breaking bread. Do you have to do it every single week? You have to have communion every single week or it's not a church or a church service. The tradition I grew up in said... <laughs> No. Trish and I grew up in, in the Midwest, but we were fiercely independent. And they said, boy, if you have communion every week, it's just going to get rote. People are just going to do it. And it's not going to mean anything. And so they didn't do it every week because they didn't want to be rote like, uh, you know, we were Baptists. We said, like those Catholics. We didn't want to be like those Catholics. We wanted to be like the Baptists. And so we did it once a month. Um, came up here to plant this church. And the church that supervised us said weekly communion. It was a good thing. It was a benefit when we first started having communion every week. I'd never done it every single week. But I knew when I was trying to learn how to preach, and it was, it was I think some of those might have been uh, struggles for me to try and every week prepare a sermon I knew that what we were coming to was the Lord's table. I knew that what was going to was Jesus Christ as our atonement. And I knew that my sermon couldn't just be politics or, or jokes or things like that. It had to be something about what it was leading to. And it really helped train me as a preacher, knowing that the Lord's table, that us participating in looking at Jesus' death on the cross uh, it, it was a great trainer for the sermon to go that direction. I used to joke with people in those early days. I'd say, even if the sermon tanks, you still get your communion. I liked 
and I love the process. Now, here's a question. Somebody I know said, Dave, if a church does not have communion every single Sunday, that's not a true church. That's not a real church. And they were insistent on that. And they took the Greek word that said uh, in the Bible that talked about how, uh, and they, they twisted the Greek language to make it say that instead of saying as often as you do it, they made it say whenever you meet together, you do it. And I said, brother, if you're going to be dogmatic, you better be consistent. But I don't think you can say that. We meet. We observe the communion. This church in the description, they met, they observed the communion. A friend of mine called me one time from a church. This is a church where there was a big church and The pastor had said, we don't observe communion very often because it just takes so much time away from my preaching whenever we have it. So I'd hate to do it every week because I'd have to cut my sermon short when people come to hear my sermons. And so they rarely had communion because there were a lot of people. And I'm thinking that's not really the way to evaluate our practice as a church. Somebody called me one time from that church and he was in some church discipline and and, and they said to him, this is a long time ago, they said to him, temporarily we are going to restrict you from the Lord's table. And he called me and he said, should I be concerned? <laughs> I said, yeah, you should be concerned. But he had not been there and it didn't mean anything to him because he'd never partaken at the Lord's table. And all of his times there, he'd been missing that. Understand that when God's people get together in practice, regularly they met and they broke bread. They partook together. It's a family meal. It's a doing in remembrance of, of, of the Lord. And so they met and they did this. What else happened when they met in this local church? Well, the word of God was declared. It says, as Paul talks still longer, Paul, after he raised Eutychus and brought him back to life through God's help. Uh, he went up and he broke bread and he eaten and he conversed with them a long while after. There was preaching combined uh, as part of their service. Preaching is not the only element of a service. You don't go to a service just for the preaching. Uh, it's in context with everything else that's done. Uh, some of you are familiar with that. He was a a, a pastor in Wales back around oh, oh, quite a while ago, uh, back in the early days of Billy Graham. He would have been in the 40s, 50s, around there. Martin Lloyd-Jones was his name. And Martin Lloyd-Jones didn't even like people taking notes of his sermons. He said, uh, don't record my sermons. Don't, don't take these notes. The sermon preached is for the context of, of the congregation that's there. The hymns fit. The confession fits. Even the conversations after. The songs that are chosen fit. And it's a sermon preached for that time. For for the moment. God's word was preached every week. Paul's reason for traveling around from place to place was to preach the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 2.12, he talked about this place, this place in Troas where he was. He said, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, 
even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. But he came to Troas to preach the gospel. We come as Christians on a Sunday morning not to hear a, uh, an opinion from the front, not to get motivated. A church is not a political action committee. Uh, a church is a place for us to come as believers and worship God and be reminded of what God did for us when Jesus died on the cross for us. It's to renew us that way. It's for us to come and say, God, you are great. God, you are my Savior. God, you're the one who forgave me. And to declare and remind ourselves and be reminded from Scripture again and again of who Jesus is and who we are in context with God through Jesus. And Paul was declaring the word. Other places in worship services and other parts of Scripture, they talk about singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And the question is, what is the point of a, of a worship service? Why do we do what we do? Why, for instance, did we open? And do we open with stanza one, we, we would say, declaring how great God is. The songs and hymns we sing at the start are songs of greatness about God. We're going to teach our kids. Uh, we've got this whole great Sunday school curriculum, and the first thing that we're talking about is, as we look through our service is the worship of God and why God alone is worthy of our praise. And we're going to sing, O worship the King, all glorious above. Uh, we're going to talk about how God is it for worship. And we start our worship services saying God is great. When we consider how great God is and how worthy of our praise God is, how there's only one God, and that God is God and everything else uh, is under lesser categories, and how we should worship nothing and no one else but God, we start to look at ourselves and go, man, I know what I did this week. If I'm going to be honest, I know the direction my mind went into. I can't come and fake it. Boy, if we had a, uh, like a, at the door, we had to walk in and, and be scanned and set up for weapons, be scanned if we're sinners or not, and sinners had to stay outside, how many people would be in this church right now? Zero. Nada. We know who we are. And when we sing about the greatness of God and the holiness of God, and we hear our elder read uh, from Exodus 20, just the Ten Commandments, it's like zap, 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 zap. And we know. And so the next part of our worship service is to then acknowledge to God that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that we can't save ourselves, that we can't work ourselves and be good enough. Um, I'm on this app. And these things, like I'm too old to get sucked into this, but I'm sucked into this. It's the Manchester United app. And you get points for showing up and you make your predictions of who you think are going to be the starters and what the score will be and who will be the man of the match and all that stuff. And you get points and you get levels and all that stuff. And it, it tracks you. And, and I, I'm on level 18. I want to get to level 23 by the end of the season. And it's like, that's stupid. That is juvenile. How does it get? But we do that with church all the time. God will like me. Right now, I may not be on level 38, but I'm on level such and such. And if I just go to church a few times, and if I just, you know, maybe yield that parking spot to somebody else, if I just do this good thing, and 
and even though I do some bad things but my good things outweigh it, then all of a sudden I approach a, a certain level. And maybe if I'm at such and such a level, when I die, then I'll get to go to heaven. Our church service is designed to remind us that it does not work that way. We cannot work our way to heaven. Uh, our love from God is not based on our external works. And so we start a worship service by singing, God is great. We go to the next movement, which is, we need God because we are not great. And we confess our sins, and we hear from Scripture what salvation is and how we can be right with God. And having done that and put everything in perspective, God, us, then we open his word and we look at his word and it's different. We just preach through the various passages of scripture. We just keep on going. Um, But we hear the word. And then as part of the word, we see the word in action as we partake at the table. And then we leave with a benediction with God's blessing ringing in our ears to live as Christians with the right perspective. It's an attitude adjustment every Sunday. And it helps us throughout. That's what was going on in this little congregation. So two, two points. We're going to get to the third one. First one, just that they met in their little congregation in the context of a bigger church. Second point, they met and there were things they did that were prescribed. There are reasons why they did what they did. There's a reason. You don't just say, well, it's like my grandparents used to watch Lawrence Welk. And... Uh, Old Lawrence would come out and have his accordion and all that. He'd go, we've got a wonderful show lined up for you tonight. And Bobby and Sissy are going to come out and tap dance for us. And so-and-so is going to play this and all that. Hope you stay around for the show. Church is not an entertainment. Got a little thing trying to get you. you It's not that. There's a reason. There's a method to God's people coming together to worship. Why we worship. We want to think through. We want to be right. We want to be biblical. We want to help each other. We want to help us. We want to follow what Scripture says. Because God's, if God's the one we worship, then maybe the God who tells us how to worship is the one we ought to follow. My wife says, honey, for my birthday, I would like, and she will always give some nice practical thing. In the early days, I just blew right by what she wanted to be, how she wanted to be honored on her birthday or Mother's Day because I liked music. So I just knew that what she really wanted was the latest CD by somebody. <laughs> I'd buy these content. Here's music, 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 music. And, and finally I figured out, no, that's not how, what makes politics. That's what makes me tick. In worship, God tells us how he wants to be worshipped. The best way for us to worship, and it works best for him and works best for us in our relationship. And so that second point is there's a reason for worship. There are things that people did, that congregations did when they came together. In this passage, it's not prescriptive, it is descriptive, but it's backed up by the various passages that are prescriptive. Last thing, we're going to talk about the young guy that uh, fell out the window and died, right? <laughs> but what, what a disappointment if we don't talk about Eutychus and talk about that story. So listen to this. Is there something we can learn and what we can learn from the situation of Eutychus? It says, here they were, first day of the week. They were gathered together to break bread. Paul talked with them. He was going to leave the next day, so it was an extra long sermon. Remember, they didn't have Bibles. Paul Paul was preaching them. He was taking the Old Testament. He was explaining who Jesus was. And it got longer and longer and longer. First day of the week, they met. They were in Troas. They were were there. They would have probably worked all day. 
Service was at night. They've worked, they're tired, and, and boy, he just kept going and going. He says they were in an upper room. Remember, no electricity in those days. Lots of candles, lots of torches, lots of, uh, of uh, fumes, not, not noxious, you know, things that put you to sleep or whatever. Just a lot of smoke scents in the air, just how you, how you get sleepy. And this young man named Eutychus, uh, he couldn't stay awake. And boy, they were up on the third floor. They were in a house. They didn't have church buildings like we have here. They had houses that they met in or meeting halls, and it would appear that this is a house. They were up on the third floor. And he wandered on over to the window because they didn't have glass in the windows. It was just an open-air thing. He's like, man, i got to get some oxygen. And he's sitting there, breathing the air, listening to Paul. And he did what I did in seminary. Shh, fall asleep. Boom. And there he is on the ground. It was late, it was midnight, it was hot. Now the question is this. How old would you say Eutychus was from reading the passage? There's two words used in the Greek language for him. The first one, it says young man. It's translated into most of our our translations, the various translations that we have as young man. I always thought of him as a young man. When I was, uh, a few years ago, I used to think a young man was somebody who was probably 25 or so. Now I think a young man is 35 or so, and when you get to 60. Um, maybe a young man is a guy who, if you're playing wiffle ball in the backyard, makes this diving, rolling catch and touches the base and gets a guy out. Like I, I saw a young man do at my house on Monday. Uh, there's a backstory to that. Then he limps over to the side, and that's it for him. You can ask Claudia about the backstory on that. Um, but uh, what's a young man? What's a young man? Later on, it uses the word in verse 12, pice, a youth, a boy. And you're thinking more in terms of, of 14-ish or so. It's a young man. He's there with his family. He's there in the church. They're trying to figure out this new thing called Christianity. They've converted out of uh, whatever their uh, religion had been, and they're hearing from Paul. And, and, and roughly, you would say, 14, a young teenager, more just by the use of that second word that, that Luke used. And Luke, being a doctor, was precise in his, uh, in his writing, in his history, in his recording. And there he was. Now, is there any word in here about condemnation of him falling asleep during a sermon? None whatsoever. None whatsoever. The word isn't that. I used to go to a, a thing back when they had it called Promise Keepers, and there was a guy named Crawford Loritz who I liked a lot. He got up one night, but we'd traveled by bus to these arena, you know, type things. And he said one time, he said, listen, I know you men work hard. I know you've traveled a lot. I know you haven't had your good night's sleep here tonight. He said, some of you are going to fall asleep when I preach. And he said, I just want to tell you, I've slept through the best of them, and it's okay. It's okay. Maybe the Lord thinks you need sleep more than this. There's no condemnation for that. My dad was a state trooper in Iowa, and he would, when he got, when he got his promoted and became an officer, then a lot of times he was out on weekends at nights. And it's a pretty tense deal, because a lot of times at night, that's when the action is, and the head knocking has to happen, and people are doing things they shouldn't be doing and all that. He'd work all night on a Saturday night. And he said to the pastor one time, he said, listen, he said, I can either sleep at home or I can come here and sleep. Which do you prefer? 
He said, I can come here and try to stay awake, but I've been up all night, and I may not make it. And the pastor said, we like to see you, Larry. Come here and sleep. Um, there's no condemnation of Eutychus. Understand, it's, it's fine. We pray even in the sermons and the services that you get what the Holy Spirit has for you. Things go in and out. You do your best to give attention to the word. It's probably good if you know you're going to worship the Lord the next day. It's probably good not to stay up till 2 or 3 the night before and try and get up. It's good to plan ahead and, and say, boy, I'm, I'm getting ready. I mean, there was a reason why in the Old Testament for the Sabbath it began at sundown on the, on the Friday night and, 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 and entered into Saturday. And it's not a bad idea for you to say, I'm going to try and, and, and as much as I can be alert so that I can really worship God, so that I can absorb what's happening, so that I can... Can, can be a better participant. But boy, there are times where it's just a struggle. You come and you worship. And our great God who remembers our frame and knows we're dust uh, takes care of all of that. Okay? The remarkable thing here is that here's a boy who died. And Dr. Luke could diagnose death. And this boy fell out the window. You think of his parents. You think of the congregation. Boy, that would interrupt the service, wouldn't it? And everybody's rushing down, and it says they went down. He fell asleep. He fell from the third story. He was taken up dead. Uh, some translations will say he was taken up four dead. Bad translation. He was, he was dead, according to the, the languages. He was clearly dead. And Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms. And this is what happened in the early church where God gave the ability for these miracles to happen and be done not so that they could worship Paul and go, ooh, Paul, but, but so that God could show that, that, that God is the one with the message to be listened to. And Paul took him in his arms. A lot of people drew the comparison uh, to the Old Testament where Elijah's uh, and, and that, that uh, widow's son died, and, and Elijah uh, essentially prayed over him and took him in his arms, and that young man came alive. And his happened again here. And the preaching continued. Paul took him, said, do not be alarmed. His life is in him. When Paul had gone up, continued the sermon. They had their communion. They ate. They conversed a lot more. And then Paul left because it was his last time with him. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. That means they were very comforted. Okay, so here's our our point for for this. And then we, we get to our final application. Be comforted that God's in control. Boy, there's ups and downs in our life. I have no idea what kind of a week you're going to have. Did Mark, when he sent me the text last week, say, uh, Lynn and I aren't going to make it this week. The kids are here. They've all been kind of throwing up, and we don't want to give anybody anything, and we're going to stay home, so, so we won't be there this morning. Did he say, oh, and by the way, I'm going to head to the hospital by the end of the week. I'm going to be put in intensive care, transferred by ambulance from New Milford's Hospital to Danbury's Hospital. He didn't know. You don't know. I don't know. We don't know. We can be comforted in the fact that God knows that God is there and God's in control of events. And in this case, here goes Paul. And they were not a little comforted. They were a lot comforted because God is in control of the situation. So take that, uh, and that's worth a lot. Don't take it for what it's worth, thinking it's a little. Take that for what it's worth, which means it's great. God's in control. Application. 
This is where I make sure the gospel has been clearly presented. Paul's message motivated people to meet together. That message Paul was proclaiming got people to come after a work day and spend hours listening and and hungrily absorbing the word. Paul's message got people to think through the scriptures to see if these things were true. What was Paul's message? What was the gospel message? What is our message? What What is our message as Christians? If it's just be good, be good, be good, be good, be good, hey, good luck with that all the way to hell. You can't be good enough anyway. My little nephew, he said, you know, my brother was trying to take him to church when he was a little kid, and he just hated to go to Sunday school. And he finally would sit in with my, my brother in, in adult Sunday school because he just didn't like it. And my brother says, what don't you like about Sunday school class? He goes, ah, it's always just the same thing. He's just a little five-year-old or so. Be good, be good, be good. That's all they ever want to tell you, be good. Um, the message from us is you can never be good enough. You can't be. And the message that Paul preached was that there is a one who was righteous for us. He said in Colossians, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so we could become the righteousness of God. Paul's message that he was eager to proclaim that these people had never heard the like and and, and wanted to hear more about was that there is a righteousness outside of ourselves because we can't generate enough goodness to make us right with God. And his message was, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What was Paul's message in 2 Corinthians? You get to this, this is every funeral service just about for a Christian, is that Jesus conquered death. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your strength? Sting. And all of us that are so worried about dying, 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 you're going to kill me, you don't, you don't die, 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 die. Christians don't have to worry about that. Death has been conquered, and we think of eternal life. And we're careful, and we do what's right, and we love our fellow man, and we, 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 we do what we can to, to, to be healthy and to help keep, keep people healthy, but we don't panic as if, oh, no, I'm going to die. Because if you're a Christian and you die, that's actually, you're going to experience life to the full. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it to the full. And he talked about that place he's going to prepare for his people. When I go, don't cry for me. In my Father's arms I'll be. Listen to this bluegrass gospel stuff this morning. And one of these old timers was singing a song and he was saying, Man, you who love me, don't cry when I'm dead. I get to see my mom again. I get to be in heaven. I get to be in a place. And he's just describing the joys and glories of heaven. And we get to go there. We get to have fun and enjoy our life here without all the baggage of worrying and and stress that that, that our our sad, poor, unfortunate friends and, and loved ones feel if they don't know the Lord. We get to live now, and then we get to really live in the future. That was Paul's message. What was Paul's message in Ephesians? Same lines. It's like a diamond, this grace that he he showed. And, And you look at it from all these different angles. And in Ephesians, he talked about this. God's grace in saving us and empowering us to do good works for him. 
There's a purpose in life, Paul proclaimed. You become a believer. You have your sins forgiven. And God has good works for you. Then you can truly do good in this world. Romans, God's salvation for people from all races. Paul talked about it's the, it's the God's power. He talked about people that weren't religious coming to know Christ and living for God. He talked about people who had been religious and had the Old Testament scriptures, but they didn't know Jesus, and they got saved. The religious and the irreligious mixed together as Christians for the first time. And he talked about that beauty as a world that is striving. Oh, put us all together. Oh, race, 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 race. The Bible answered that a long time ago. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. You're a Christian. You're my sister. You're my brother. And finally, Paul's message that he proclaimed that had this church meeting together, that had them sitting up late at night and even falling out of windows when they fell asleep. Ephesians 4.30. He talked about how believers are sealed for the day of redemption. You are saved. God saves you. God says, greater love has no one than this than that a man lay down his life for my friends. You are my friends. For the day of redemption, he's not going to walk away from you. If you saved yourself by your own works, then logic says you can unsave yourself by your own works. If you understand that God saved you and God is the one and it's God's word, then the only one that can unsave you is God. And God says, I'll never do that. God will never treat you like we've treated some people who are citizens of this country and we've just said goodbye to them. God's not going to leave you behind enemy lines. God's not going to say, well, sorry, plane's full and heaven's full and you have a lot of people here, so you're on your own. God says, you're mine and I've saved you. He means it. Jesus said this word. He said, all that the Father gives to me are mine and no one will be able to, and the old King James says, no one will be able to pluck them out of my hand. If God's got you in his hand, if you're his daughter, you're his son, here in the palm of Jesus' hand, he's got you and nothing can come along and take you away. I think the devil can do that. You can't even jump out yourself. You are God's. He's got you. And there is an eternal salvation and a joy we have that even if circumstances aren't looking so good in our particular lives, we know we are in God's hand. We know about heaven. We know about eternity. We know about who we are. We know about adoption papers. We know that, that we have been adopted into Christ's family and, and that adoption paper was signed in Jesus' blood. And we can be confident of that. And that was the message that Paul preached that night to that little church. And praise God for that. Let's pray. Go to the Lord's table and and then see this in action here. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Eutychus. (laughs) Thank you for his family uh, who had brought him there, we presume. Thank you for the demonstration of, of you being in control Thank you for early church and people who 
met and people who followed your uh, guidelines for worship. Thank you that we get to be part of a long chain uh, that goes uh, chronologically back to this early church. Thank you that we get to be part of this broad chain of Christians that are existing around the world. We thank you for Jesus who died on the cross for our sins, and we pray that you'll help us as we participate in our local church, even as we are members of a universal church. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we go to the table, understand that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthian church. And he was talking about what happens at this